as we come now before God's Word. If you'd like to read with me, uh, we'll be again in Exodus chapter 7. We'll finish out this chapter this morning. That's Exodus chapter 7. Roll the shoulders a little bit. I know there's a little less standing and sitting and, and moving the blood flow around in your bodies than we're used to, so, so wiggle it out. Uh, before also we, we read these things, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, uh, we've begun our service this morning uh, with the words from the Psalms that you would give, uh, we would give ear to your teaching and that we would incline our hearts uh, to you. Lord, would you help us now to do that, to lean forward here. We know any resistance within us is not just because of tiredness of body or of mind, but uh, because our hearts are this way. Lord, would you grip us then with these things? Would you shape us like clay in your hand? Guide us now by your spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. And this is in Exodus chapter 7. I want to take the second half of this chapter this morning. So we'll begin here in verse 14 and read through the end. Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that's in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned to blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven 
full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. This is the word of God. Now, we enter here into the first of the plagues, the first of the great judgments of the Lord upon Egypt. And before we dive into this text, I want to take a step back here and look at the whole series of the ten plagues all at once. There are ten total, and they will span these next six chapters of Exodus. So we're not going to spend ten weeks on this. We're not going to take one week for each plague. And that's because of the way this series of plagues is actually laid out. It seems as if there is no uh, particular significance, at least not a clear one, for the ordering of the plagues, except that they're building toward the tenth one, which is the death of all the firstborn. In fact, as to the ordering of these things, when the Psalms specifically sing about this, it's uh, in in Psalm uh, 78 and in Psalm 102, if you're interested to look it up, when they mention this part of Israel's history and they comment specifically on the plagues, when they do that, they remix the plagues. They say them in a different order and sometimes leave out particular plagues as they do it. So as, as we go through this, we're not going to focus on every plague equally. Uh, or, or necessarily even going to focus on the order of the plagues. But there is a particular structure to the plagues here that we're going to try to follow. The plagues come in cycles. They're set apart in sets of three. So there's plague one, two, and three, four, five, and six, seven, eight, and nine, ten. And these cycles of three follow a clear pattern each time as they repeat back on themselves. This first plague of the cycle, which we're looking at the first plague of a cycle here, always begins with go to Pharaoh in the morning. It specifically triggers this new cycle. And usually it's some sort of outdoor context that Moses and Pharaoh have their interaction. The second plague in the cycle then is in the courtroom of the Pharaoh. And the third plague of each cycle, there's very minimal or even no contact at all between Moses and Pharaoh. And then that cycle repeats back on itself three times. So this is how we'll approach this in the coming weeks. If you like structure, this is for you. We're going to look at each plague of the first cycle. So we're going to look at number one, two, and three, the the blood, the frogs, and the gnats. And then we'll take the next cycles together. So four, five, six together seven, eight, nine together, and then the tenth one on its own, because that's designed to be the focus. So that's where we're headed. This morning, we are now in the first plague of the first cycle. And as we look at each plague in this first cycle, we are going to read them specifically with an eye to Pharaoh's hardened heart. That's an established theme in this beginning set of plagues, Pharaoh's hardened heart. So the big question for us in this and these next three weeks is this. Why does Pharaoh harden his heart here? That's our question. Why does Pharaoh harden his heart here? 
And we need to address this question because it's a critical question for all of us. A hard heart or a heart that is walled off to God, walled off to God's ways, a hard heart is dangerous and even deadly. A hardened heart is the source of all kinds of evil and wickedness. Sexual unfaithfulness, loveless relationships rooted in a hard heart. Bitterness, jealousy, greed, arrogance, all rooted in a hard heart. Racism, revenge, violence, rooted in hard hearts. Even callousness and unbelief, all of it comes from a hard heart. A hard heart is a breeding ground, a petri dish for sin. And that is dangerous and frightening even. Because worst of all, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 that by a hard heart we are storing up the wrath of God for ourselves on the day of God's righteous judgments. That happened to Pharaoh. That happens to many people. And I don't want that to happen to you. A hard heart does not happen overnight. You know, when you go to the doctor, how arteries can harden? I guess that's a thing, right? Hardened arteries. You know how that happens? It's not just with one cheeseburger, although I like a good cheeseburger. It's not just with one. But if you have a series of cheeseburgers, too many cheeseburgers, you'll get there. It'll build up over time the fat and cholesterol and other things that are not supposed to be stuck in your veins, but get stuck there. You can get to hardened arteries by not taking care of yourself. And it can kill you if you don't face it and deal with it. The same is true for a hard heart. So this is actually a life-giving warning. A warning of love that we would set our hearts in God's hands, that Jesus would change our hearts, that the Spirit would soften and mold and shape our hearts like a potter on a potter wheel so that we would not be dead and under the wrath of God, but alive in the love of God. This is critically important for us. So how do we get there? How do we avoid hardening our hearts toward God? We know that this is only by God's grace and mercy. <laughs> only. We must cling to his grace in this. We must follow him by his grace in this. And yet, we can't just sit back and go, God, have grace on me. 
There are many things that we are doing even in our daily lives that are even either moving us toward or away from hard-heartedness. So let's look and see here. Just to safeguard so that we'll move in a good and holy direction. That's our goal. Before we can even talk about that, let's look at the, we'll look at the events uh, uh, of these on Pharaoh, but we first need to see what's happening with this first plague here. A simple summary of this first plague that we've just read is that Moses and Aaron, by the power of God, strike the Nile River with their staff and the waters of the Nile turn to blood. We know that, right? Pretty simple. Now let's dig into that a little further. If you watch the TV programs on these sorts of things, you maybe even read a few books on the events of Exodus, there's no shortage of those sorts of things, you'll notice that a common explanation of how these sorts of things occurred is that it was by some sort of natural phenomenon. So some of the common suggestions are that there may have been perhaps a flood in Ethiopia or in some part of modern Sudan that was further up the Nile River that caused this washout of red sediment that now flooded the Nile and turned it red and made it poisonous to the fish. That's a common explanation. And another one is that there was perhaps a strong seasonal change in the area that caused a breeding of uh, red-colored microorganisms, things like algae or plankton and other biological things that I don't understand. Uh, But that then flooded the Nile and made it look red and also poisonous to the fish. These are rare occurrences, but they're possible. They're natural occurrences. And each one of them would turn the water red and it would kill off a measure of the fish. And and in fact, even, it's possible that something like this would cause a chain reaction for the following plagues. That when the fish all start to die off, then the frogs want out and end up on the land. And as the frogs die on the land, then breeds the plagues of flies and gnats. And from the flies and gnats, then come the plagues of the disease of the livestock and so on and so on. Although it's tricky to see how some of them fit with that. Hail and the the three days of darkness is tricky. Uh, But some have said this all can have a naturalistic explanation. My response to that is that God is not opposed to using natural means to accomplish his supernatural purposes. We see plenty of examples in Scripture of this, but there's one that's very similar to this in in many ways. I won't read it just because it's a long account, although I'd encourage you to read it because it's fascinating. In 2 Kings chapter 3, there's an incident. These are in the days of Elijah and the prophets. Uh, But in 2 Kings chapter 3, uh, there's an event where the king of Israel and the king of Judah and and, uh, the king of Edom, I think it is, the three of them team up, and they're going to go to war against another king, the king of Moab. And so they've camped in a particular place, and while they're in this military camp, the Lord says to, to Israel, he says, I will fill the dry streams and waterbeds around you with pools of water. Just going to, you know, there'll just be some water there. And also I'm going to give the Moabites into your hands. Okay. So in the morning, the Moabites then wake up and they look at the camp of Israel and the other kings. And what they see are the dry riverbeds have now been filled with water. 
dew or some, a, a little bit of rain or something. But because of the way the sun is and in the distance, they see what looks like red around the camp. It says that in the text. It says, ah, it's red as blood. And their assumption is that these three kings and their people have turned on one another and killed one another. And so they say, let's go in and take the spoils. And so they come walking in, and, and they come in totally unprepared, uh, but that's not what's occurred. Israel and Judah and the others are fully uh, prepared and living, and so they attack the Moabites, and they win. Simple incident where some water and the angle of the sun worked God's purposes. Natural means by which God accomplishes supernatural things. Certainly God can and does such things. So it would be no trouble to us at all if that were the case here. But I don't think that is the case here. These seem to be beyond supernatural events. There's a few reasons why I think that from the text. The first is that the language here in Exodus is just very different than it is in 1 Kings chapter 3. The Nile water is not described as being like blood, as it is in 2 Kings. It's not described as being as blood. It says it is turned to blood. It says it became blood. And some would say, okay, well, that could be a reference to the color. Just like we have blood red, it became blood, like the color blood. And, uh, and we do see scripture using the term that way. Sometimes you run across the phrase that the moon turned to blood. If you ever run in that when you read the scripture, it does not mean the moon was dripping blood. It means it was blood red, turned color. So it's possible that, but there's more reasons here to think that this is not just the color blood. It is blood, a supernatural action. The second reason why I think it's a supernatural event is the timing of this. The very opening of this section says uh, in verse 15 that this happened as Pharaoh is going out to the Nile in the morning. We don't know what he's doing there. You know, maybe he's taking a bath, morning scrub. You get the luxury of that if you're the Pharaoh. Uh, my hunch is that he's going out as part of his regular morning religious ritual at the Nile, sort of like his going to church. Uh, but whatever's going on here, Moses intercepts Pharaoh on the banks of the river. And of course, we know that the Lord is wise and powerful and all-seeing, so he could have timed all of this just right, that something that had happened way, way upstream in the Nile uh, just a while ago was set to occur just right so that it would appear just when he wants. But the text says that Pharaoh watched while Moses and Aaron strike the water with the staff and it turned to blood. We don't know exactly how this happened, whether they struck it and it all instantly was red, or whether it seemed to spread. But whatever it was, whatever happened was sudden and clear. There is no amount of plankton or algae or sediment that can be this dramatic and this sudden. The origin of the redness was from the tip of the staff on the water. But there's a third reason here that I should mention because it's the most striking, to me the most convincing about this, which is the storage of the water. 
Look what's reported about this in verse 19. As the Lord is telling them what to do beforehand. Verse 19, the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch your hand over the waters of Egypt. Now there's a list here. Over the rivers, the canals, their ponds, and their pools of water so that they may become blood. So the rivers, those first three, the rivers, the canals, and the ponds, all of those make sense. Those are the areas that would be flowing out of the Nile River, the various tributaries and all the sciencey things that I don't quite follow and understand. But that makes perfect sense. If the Nile turns blood red, they turn blood. But it also says here that it will turn their pools of water to blood. Some translations translate this, their reservoirs of water. In other words, the places where they had gathered water, where water was stored. Even the last uh, part of verse 19 says, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. So they're buckets, the wood ones which are for daily use and the stone ones which are water for more long-term use. Even the water in there, untouched by the Nile at the moment, turned to blood. So the equivalent of this for, for these days is that if we went into our bathroom and the toilet water were blood, not just in the bowl, but also when you flush it from the tank, or if we went out to our gardens and sprayed out of our rain barrels, blood, or if we went to go wash our clothes and press the start button and blood began to gush or worst of all you know your Brita pitcher in the fridge would look like tomato juice I don't know of any natural way all of that could occur all of this seems to be the direct and supernatural hand of God Can you even imagine what this might have been like? Blood here, blood here, even in the vases of water. I mean, the people of Israel and, and of Egypt knew on some level that there was a clash going on. They knew that Moses and Pharaoh had had a tiff because there had been a public announcement about how Pharaoh was changing the, the, the slavery, that they were to now build things without straw. They knew something was going on. There was some public element of this, but now something is different. It would be very clear to everyone, everyone, Israelite and Egyptian, that something here has gone very wrong. Something big is in the middle of happening. And that's the point here. They were to see that the Lord God is God and to listen up. We don't know what the immediate effect was on Pharaoh. We are told by the end he took this to heart, it says. But at least immediately, we don't know what he was thinking or what he felt. Was he afraid when he saw this? Skeptical? Did he even bat an eye? Or did he go, ah, no big deal? We don't know. We do know what he did. We know what happened next. He calls again for the Egyptian magicians, these priests of the dark arts. And so here comes Pharaoh's crew. Now, 
when we see them by the end of this text, the magicians cannot do what we assume Pharaoh would want them to do. We assume he would want them to turn it back, turn it back from blood into water. They cannot reverse the effect. In fact, there's no evidence here that the water ever turns back from blood into water. Perhaps it just eventually was washed out as water came and ran through again. But the best the magicians can do is to produce more blood. They're able to locate water still somehow. We know at the end of the text that uh, some people are still able to drink water. They have to dig, it says, along the while. Somehow, somehow the water that's beneath the earth is still drinkable, is still fresh. So somehow access to springs worked. The Nile blood killed off the fish, but it did not kill off the people. So somehow the magicians got access, to dug up some water. So they got their little bit somewhere. Maybe they put it into a bucket. And they bring their water into the court of Pharaoh. And they turn that water into real blood blood too. It's less impressive than turning an entire river into blood, but it's still a big deal. And it is still supernatural work. No one looked in there and went, red plankton. They probably dipped it and went, that's blood. These Egyptian magicians were able to copy the plague that God had done. They do it by a different power, but they get a similar result. These magicians are not working by the hand of the Lord God, but by other supernatural powers, which the scripture sometimes calls the gods or demons. At any, uh, at any rate, the effect of the magician's work here is that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. It's not the first cheeseburger. His heart has been hardened. He's opposed God before, that it, but it is certainly hardened further. If you look in verse 22, the magicians did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Therefore, his heart was hardened. So this is the answer to our question. Why is Pharaoh's heart hardened here? Pharaoh saw what looked like God, what was a clever knockoff of God, and he gave himself permission then to ignore the real God. Pharaoh saw a counterfeit, and he bought it. This sort of thing has been happening for centuries, by the way. We see it periodically in the scriptures. It shows up even in the New Testament days. In the book of Acts, there's a number of people who are specifically called magicians. Not illusionists, trick workers, real supernatural workers. There's a man named Simon, uh, a magician who tries to, uh, to buy the Holy Spirit power from Peter. There's a man named Elimus, who's a magician who tries to manipulate the proconsul to work against Paul. And the most striking one is in Acts chapter 9, where in the city of Ephesus, 
there's a mass number of converts to Christianity. And a bunch of those people are ones who used to be magicians. They used to practice their magic arts. And so when they convert to Christianity, they bring their old magic arts books and burn them. And we're told in Acts chapter 19 that the value of all of those books was 50,000 pieces of silver. Someone did the math. That's the equivalent today of $6 million worth of books. I only have half a million dollars worth of books myself. That's a massive amount of books. Do you see how pervasive the hooks of this is, even in their culture? Now, if we think that people today are too smart for magic now, that we are somehow past that, or that's just something for a different time or a different place, a different country, you're wrong. You're wrong. We see in the book of Revelation an uprising of a counterfeit trinity. There's the great dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And together they work signs and wonders that were told go abroad to the kings of the whole world. Would affect all corners of the globe, and many are deceived. Many are hardened by it. And it's not just these three guys, there are many counterfeits that even target Christians specifically. Jesus tells his followers about this. Uh, toward the end of Mark chapter 13. Let me find it. He says this in verse uh, 21. Jesus says, If anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. They are specifically focusing on trying to subvert Christians. We know Satan doesn't walk around with his red pitchfork and his forked tongue, you know. The scripture tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light that he is pretty, that in some way he looks like God, he speaks like God, that he does in some way what God does. He mimics him as much as he can. And so on the face, the power of Moses and the power of the magicians look the same, except one is real and one is a counterfeit. And if you follow one, it will harden your heart. And if you follow the other, it will soften it. (sighs) I say all of this not to scare you or to stir up anxiety within you, but I must say this to make you aware 
and alert of such things. It's not likely that we know any practicing magicians. And so it's easy to just kind of bypass this. But you have most certainly, most certainly encountered the powers behind those magicians. You may not have seen waters turn into blood, but I guarantee you have heard the counterfeit whispers in other ways. You have heard the promises that give counterfeit power, counterfeit pleasure, counterfeit purpose, counterfeit peace, even. And oh, doesn't it seem right? It might look like God, but it's a disguise. And there is always an ulterior motive here. Counterfeit gods run on credit. They ask nothing, cost nothing up front, but they will cost you everything in the end. So beware. What counterfeit then is being promised to you? Do you know what works of counterfeit blood would be most tempting to you? Where your heart might be vulnerable to be hardened, to be sucked in by something that looks like God but isn't. Is it in the area of money, power, comfort? Maybe temptations toward laziness to be slack in our work? Or even toward hyperdiligence to be, to be overworked? Maybe it's in our attitudes as you watch the news stories about COVID and, and politics and all the racial protests that maybe you can feel your heart become hardened to these things. So hard that the only thing that matters is your own opinion on it. Are you willing to let that be another cheeseburger that goes unnoticed? That continues to harden you? How then do we avoid it? How do we, do we avoid being hardened by such a thing? I'll mention one last thing. There's a symptom here with Pharaoh that accompanies a hardness of heart. See if you notice it. It's in verse 22. Listen for the symptom here. The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. He would not listen. It's a symptom of a hard heart. So Christian, please, listen. Ask God to open up your ears 
that he would help you to hear and help you to follow, we need to listen diligently, that we would actually put the work and sweat into understanding our God. We need to listen frequently, that we have constant interaction with him so that we'll know and recognize his voice. We need to listen willingly even, that we, we would be ready to follow even if he asks hard things of us. And when we listen, we will begin to see the holes in the counterfeit. They'll be exposed for what they are. And we'll begin to see the real power of the Lord, which is bigger and beyond all compare. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord. Would you help us to listen to you and not to take in that which does not come from you? You told us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Lord, guard us from that. Help us not to be hardened in our hearts, but to surrender to you. We know that you are Lord over all. Help us to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.